0: From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished recording our news show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including J.P. Morgan Chase acquires payments FinTech Renovite. Really interesting move from JP here. We've seen them take a partnership strategy previously, but here they're really, really investing to try and take on the likes of Stripe and Block. So we dig into that in more detail. Revolut is also launching a one-click payment feature. So again, lots and lots happening in this space at the moment everyone seems to be launching this feature at the moment so we explore revolute's angle on this and also kim kardashian launches private equity firm what is this woman not doing um, but yeah amazing to to explore that in more detail we get into all of this and much more but first a few brief messages don't go anywhere
1: as you gear up for autumn you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders linkedin jobs is here to make it easier Tap into the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Create a job post in minutes and spread the word so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Just add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to find candidates with just the right skills and experience. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires compared with leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. And you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Your favourite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday, 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there.
0: Welcome to episode 664 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing, Benjamin?
1: I'm very well, but I'm also sad because the Queen has died. And I don't know that I'll see another Queen of England or Scotland in my lifetime. And that's sad because she was an amazing woman. So good, but sad.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an unusual week in the yeah. UK. Yeah, lots of kind of mixtures of sort of celebration and commemoration, but also, yeah, Sadness plus pomp and grandeur, and people getting overexcited about things that are just a bit silly. But uh, I suppose that is the way <laughs> with British society. So, um, but sadly, you know, the world of fintech has not paused. You know, the world of fintech never never stops. So we've got lots to discuss. And as always, we're joined by some very special guests, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Eric Johansson, fintech editor at Verdict. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thank you for being here. Could you give our listeners a recap on you and your news beat at Verdict, please?
3: Of course. First off, thank you so much again for having, having me back. I'm always very happy to be back here. Yeah, Verdi is a tech publication that tries to decrypt all the wonderful things that happen in the world of world of technology. So, me myself, I do tend to co- cover fintech, but I also get to cover weird and absurd things like the new, like Loeb, which is a weird AI AI woman that hides in image processing software. So. A lot of different things, but predominantly fintech.
0: Brilliant. Really excited to get your perspective on things, Eric. Thank you for joining us. It's a fintech insider debut for Adam Bialy, founder and CEO at Fiat Republic. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for joining us. Could you give our listeners a little introduction to you and Fiat Republic, please?
4: Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm uh, the CEO and the the founder of uh, Fiat Republic. We're a regulated banking infrastructure provider uh, for crypto platforms. So we basically go around the world, connect banks to our API and then give that API to crypto exchanges, other crypto platforms um, like on ramps and off ramps, providers, uh, wallets. We do the heavy lifting of uh, talking and interacting with banks and uh, onboarding uh, with them, uh, so that they don't they don't have to. And uh, we also offer FX services uh, and treasury services uh, for treasury teams at uh, crypto platforms. And we also help the crypto community or the crypto platforms level up their compliance uh, processes and programs, um, so that. Uh, there are no uh, abrupt debankings um, going on. They don't lose their banking rails all of a sudden, stranding millions of consumers. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so that's what we do at Fiat Republic. Brilliant.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. Very excited to have your, your brain with us today because we're going to dig into some crypto news. So, looking forward to hearing your take on that. And with that, let's get into the news. First up, a story from CNBC, J.P. Morgan Chase acquires payments fintech Renovite to battle Stripe and Block. JPMorgan Chase has agreed to acquire a payment startup called Renovite to fend off threats from fintech firms including Stripe and Block. The bank, a major player in the global payments arena, said that acquiring California-based Renovite will speed up its ability to roll out new offerings to merchants. While JPMorgan is often content to partner with fintechs and take relatively small stakes in them, the bank felt that Renovite's product was too important not to own outright, according to a JPMorgan executive. The Renovite acquisition is the latest in a string of fintech deals made under CEO Jamie Dimon. Since late 2020, JP Morgan has acquired at least five startups from an ESG investing platform to a UK-based robo-advisor on top of making a series of smaller fintech investments. Benjamin, what was what was your reaction to this one?
1: Super interesting. I mean, I think Jamie Dimon has been one of the executives of, at, at sort of established banks, who's fastest to recognize the threat from fintech. He's been talking about fintech for for, at least a decade. It's interesting to see that they're now choosing to buy more companies that despite his efforts to get JPMorgan Chase sort of uh, mobilized for fintech, they're still finding it's quicker and more effective to buy companies than to develop things in-house. So, you know, why exactly did they buy Renovite? Was it the people? Was it the tech Is a bit of both? But it's interesting to see that's a better decision than trying to build it in-house, even when you've got an executive who's really been banging the drum and trying to get everybody um, focused on moving faster.
0: Absolutely, it shows really how hard how hard that is to change in an organisation. Eric, what was your what was your verdict on this? Why do you think J.P. Morgan are buying a payments fintech?
3: I mean, I think they've been very clear why they've been buying it because essentially is what what they've been saying it is the reason is that they need to catch up with fintechs jamie diamond has like you said warned for years and years and years that fintechs are catching up and i'm i am actually not that surprised that they are deciding to buy rather than develop first of developing takes a lot of time especially when there are other people already out there doing what the thing that you want to do and we also know, especially if you if, if you come from a UK perspective, that it doesn't always go that well when an established bank try to do something a startup can do better. You listeners will remember when RBS launched Bo, which was presumably their monso killer, which lasted roughly six months, six months of absolute panning from the public before it folded. So. Uh, them buying buying rather than developing, kind of makes sense to me.
0: It's interesting. I guess yeah. I think you're definitely right in your analysis of of Bo. But you know, JP have launched their own fintech offering in the UK now, Chase, and it sort of seems to be getting a an okay reception so far. So I suppose yeah, it's an interesting balance of struggle. I think there's definitely been struggles, right? But maybe maybe, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I don't know. But uh, it's definitely one interesting to watch. Benjamin, do you think do you think they're spending too much on on these kinds of acquisitions?
1: I mean, it's difficult to say because, as, you know, as Eric said, there's the strategic risk for someone like J.P. Morgan Chase of falling behind is substantial, right? Chase is a huge payment processor in the states, and yet they're seeing their market share getting taken away by firms like Stripe and Block and so on, that have been faster to respond to the needs of small emerging digital companies, um, you know, things like mobile point of sale and so on. Um, so it's worth JP Morgan Chase paying substantial money to maintain their ex- established business I haven't I have to admit I haven't looked at the, the valuation exact in detail to look at whether it this is actually a particularly good price to pay
0: I'm not sure it's actually made public I'd have to have to double check I don't think it has been at this at this stage so definitely want to keep an eye out for the future um Adam what, what interested you about this
4: so I'm, I'm taking the technology angle here um, I think um, JP Morgan, Uh, You have been doing um, great strides to improve and upgrade their technology over the last couple of years, but I think they're still far off from where, let's say, a Stripe is or let's say an Adyen is that didn't have the burdensome legacy technology of 50 years um, and could just build everything from scratch, right, based on the newest cloud computing technologies and hosting technologies, including the security uh, features that come inherently with those kind of technologies. So I would say this is a technology acquisition. I would say that JP Morgan will also probably try and keep it autonomous for a time um, and, uh, and, and, and use it as a bit of a nimble sort of offset of the really, um, you know, I don't know if you, if many of you have actually seen the JPMorgan Chase online checkout experience. Suffice to say, it's not, you know, uh, competitive when compared directly with the likes of Stripe, Checkout.com. Adyen, and others. So I would say this is purely, to me, it's a technology acquisition to potentially uh, you know, allow their internal teams to, to learn and to discover potentially ways to innovate and upgrade their technology stack further.
0: It certainly feels like JP Morgan's going for that sort of fuller ecosystem play. I think we were talking on the show a couple of weeks ago about them sort of announcing their intentions to build this end-to-end travel agency. Have you Come across that, Rashy Eric. Have you, have you got got a take on whether you think that sort of ecosystem play from JP Morgan is is credible?
3: It does make sense sense to me that they're trying to create this eco- kind of ecosystem. I mean, most financial services providers are, whether you're Klana or Stripe or Block or Evolute, you're all tr- they're all trying to create you know these new types of, su- of financial super apps, if you will. So it does it does make sense. I was want to add something to what you said earlier, Benjamin. You mentioned that you don't, you don't really know what the valuation of this deal is, which I'm just guessing here. We, we are in an absolutely horrifying market situation. We're see, we seeing fintech funding drop. We're seeing acquisitions drop. And that just kind of, Suggest to me, and I don't know if this is the case with this deal, but I am suspecting that there will be quite a few reasonably cheap acquisitions going, on going to happen in the next few months. I don't know if this is a, one of the cheap deals, but could be. I do not know because I haven't seen the valuation. Agreed,
1: it's definitely looking more like a, a buyer's market. Um, Kate, I'm going to take slight issue with the question of: Can you are they building an ecosystem? I don't think you can build an ecosystem. I think you ecosystems form, you can become part of an ecosystem. But the idea that any one company can sort of dominate or control an ecosystem, is a little bit of a misunderstanding of how sort of digital businesses partner and work together. So I think you, JP Morgan is trying to own more and more pieces mm-hmm. so that it's playing in more in more layers and, and more games. But I don't know that the idea of trying to build a one-stop shop with digital components is any more viable than it was 20 or 30 years ago when banks were trying to do it in other ways.
0: Yeah, no, I, I don't think I'd, I'd disagree. I think, as you say, like they've definitely been out there hoovering up acquisitions, kind of trying to slot all of those blocks together. But as you say, it's how they bring the experience together and kind of what else, what other partnerships are around that that I think will be really influential. Adam, do you think the likes of Stripe and Block are going to be quaking in their boots over this?
4: I don't think so. Not really. I'm... I'm Kind of to go back to my previous point i think this is uh depending on which press announcement you read about it the, the the final point or the final paragraph tends to be the real reason for why they bought this company and in this case it is 125 engineers in india it's quite a cheap way to acquire 125 engineers well gelled together built something together launch the product it's quite a you know, a luxury good, <laughs> I would say. So I would stick to that sort of, that this is a technology acquisition used by JP Morgan to to, to further upgrade their tech stack and make them a bit more competitive and stop hemorrhaging um, merchants um, to, to the competitors like Stripe and, and, and others, just based on how clunky and unwieldy the, their platform is.
0: Absolutely. Benjamin, do you think this is good news for merchants? A merchant's gonna be better served as a result of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, anything that brings more competition into the sort of merchant acquiring market is probably good news for merchants. You know, to to, the point the others have been making, by raising the bar, firms like Stripe, firms like Adyen, firms like Block are making services better for all merchants and probably also for, for consumers. So yeah, I think it's a good thing. It only becomes a bad thing when you start getting one company starts to become a monopoly and gets too comfortable and you see innovation slowing down. So anything that accelerates innovation is a good thing for merchants.
0: Fingers crossed. Yeah, we definitely want to see merchants being better served, so long may long may the competition in that space continue from that perspective. Our next story comes from Bloomberg, and that's that Revolut wants to compete with PayPal and Apple at online checkouts. Lots of competition going on at the moment. Revolut is launching a one-click payment feature in a bid to rival PayPal and other tech giants at online checkouts. Revolut Pay has signed up retailers including Shopify, PrestaShop, WH Smith, and Funky Pigeon. It will also be available within the airline industry in the coming months. The payment feature running on Revolut's in-house software will enable consumers to earn cash back on purchases through mobile and desktop browsers. Shoppers who aren't Revolut customers can use the feature with payment cards from other providers. What's uh, appealing to fintechs about one-click payments features at the moment? Seems like there's quite a few going on, Benjamin.
1: I think what's appealing to you- to to merchants is that one-click payment um, boosts sales, right? The less friction there is in a transaction, the the more likely people are to buy. Obviously, also for for people buying, one-click is great unless you're drunk, um, in which case you (laughs) buy something you didn't want.
0: (laughs) Could not possibly comment. Just thought you
1: wanted. Um, So one-click payment accelerates e-commerce. So from that perspective, it's good. My question here, though, is... Why Revolut? What's in it? You know, when I when I see deals like this, I'm like, okay, or, or ideas like this. What's clever about what Revolut's bringing, and why is somebody going to want to press a Revolut button rather than another button?
0: Yeah, I'm interested. To, I've, I'm interested to see how the sort of the cashback element to it works, mm-hmm. and sort of how integrated that is. You know, we know that um, rewards are, are a massive driver of, of consumer behaviour in terms of how how those are delivered. So. Yeah, maybe if they've they've kind of really kind of integrated rewards into that one-click process, and it's so like a really easy and smooth experience, that could be could be interesting to see play out. Eric, are you, are you intrigued by this? Excited by this? Or or a bit meh?
3: Somewhere in, in in the middle. I am not surprised because obviously after Amazon's one-click pattern ran out in 2017, and we have seen a lot of these companies pop up. I'm not and I'm not surprised that you have established brands like Revolut. Providing it because it's more of one of those features that people are expecting that they should have, so I'm not really surprised. I am more. Uh, I would be worried if it was like a new company that is doing that would be doing only this. without if, if a one-click checkout would be the only thing that they provided to um, to consumers. But no, I'm not surprised.
0: Okay, um, I mean obviously it's interesting. The Amazon held the patent for one-click ordering online, I think, until sort of twenty. 20- 2017. So I suppose you might say that we're just seeing like branded knockoffs of that kind of original idea. I mean, Adam, is it is is it anything? Is there anything more interesting technologically happening here? Are there people innovating in any kind of other ways that we're not seeing?
4: I think um, you got to go back to why those companies, e-commerce brands, right, started doing this in the first place. It's because it sort of um, uh, integrates this environment in which uh, their customers are spending more potentially at other retailers, right? Amazon did this to be able to see what their customers are spending money on outside of the Amazon ecosystem, right? Revolut, and if you take that um, as as an assumption, Revolut is doing this because they have 20 million customers with their cards. They wanna know where they're spending their money. They do that already to an extent, but if they have additional data by having the merchants actually on their side as well, and the customer sees that logo of Revolut, they have a Revolut card, that makes that starts making a lot of sense for for Revolut and for the customer uh, feeling that they are you know in a safe environment they they are being um, you know uh, they, they they are using additional service from Revolut that allows them to um, use their money more wisely and you know they, they they are being taken care of by Revolut right so I I would I would see those kind of benefits and that's I think that's what they're trying to do.
1: I tell you where I think this gets interesting is, is Revolut's unique proposition has always been that low-cost foreign exchange. Right, that you could take a Revolut card, take it to any other country, and you know you you were paying less, or often often paying less. Now, if Revolut can repeat the same trick with online merchants, digital merchants that are selling across multiple countries, and if they can. Route that FX more cheaply and drive down the merchants' costs. Then suddenly, this is very interesting because suddenly, if you're, let's say, you're a merchant in the UK and you're selling into Europe, or you're um, you're a merchant in Turkey selling into into Europe or selling into Africa or wherever, if Revolut's going to help you drive down your processing costs on cross-border transactions, suddenly, ooh, this is suddenly very interesting. So I think understanding what the fees are here for merchants, so this could look a lot more attractive. If Revolut is doing some clever things on the back end, driving down the costs for the merchants of taking cross-border transactions, I don't know that that is what's behind it. But if it is, then I think this is a lot more interesting than if it's just another one-click checkout button.
0: Yeah, interesting for sure. Um, I suppose it's it's hard to get a sense of, when Revolut first started, it felt like such a purely B2C offering, and and now they're moving into B2B. So how, how would you see them, Benjamin? Are they B2C, B2B? They're both.
1: it's it's b2c but revolut is trying to build up you know business and you know there there are plenty of young entrepreneurs who are probably revolut customers who think well yeah okay I'll give them a try I'll give their platform a try and obviously this you know the payment acceptance is a big part of running a small business or you know, <laughs> if you're not taking money you're not a successful small business right so yeah, I think that, you know, this is really about Revolut business, I, 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 the fact they have 16 million customers, you, you said it was 20 million, didn't you? Um, that's a, helpful, but I think this is very much about Revolut business.
0: Okay, no, absolutely. Um, Eric, you know, we've seen Revolut having quite a few issues recently, you know, key staff leaving, some auditor questions about their accounts. Um, do you think these types of launches are going to help them move past that difficult period? Is that kind of a factor here?
3: I'm not sure how much they are struggling because they haven't had losses from, from it for many years, which is just, you know, the way this game game is played when you're venture capital funded. So I do not know if they are in that much trouble. I'm very much waiting for their next funding round and see if they're going to have the same abysmal down row that Klarna had, but... We will. We'll see. We we also know that yes, key people have been have been leaving, but key people have been leaving the li- re- on and off for a few years. So again, they still they're still here. So I'm not sure if this is a thing that will make sure that they survive or not. Because I think their cross border payments and things like that will be more important than whether or not they have a one click shopping solution.
0: Okay. No, absolutely. Um. As I mean, we've seen some, some lots of uh, excitement in this space, but also some, some fairly notable failures as well. I think you know, Fast is obviously the example that comes to mind, you know, a lot of buzz around them and then obviously shutting down in in April. Um, do you think this market's been overvalued or what, what do you think is going on?
4: So I would say that um, it, it depends on, uh, you know, how you, you, like which measure or metric you use to evaluate the market, right? Because like if, if you take the Revolut customers, which I, I was uh, talking about, um, 20 million customers, right? Um, when they have uh, an additional option to um, to check out at the merchants of their choice. Right, um, that is fulfilling a use case and and kind of making the customer more sticky, right? Of Revolut as you know as as um, the the banking customer, right? But on the flip side of things, um, this is gonna be totally dependent. The growth of this product is gonna depend or the success of it. it is gonna be dependent on uh, how many merchants they sign up, right? Um, and um, now I'm not 100% sure if there's enough cross pollination between Revolut business and the kind of merchants that. Uh, Revolut customers are spending money with, right? I, I wouldn't put an equation mark here because it's really hard. Um, you know, the kind of businesses that Revolut is signing up, you know, uh, a lot of them are are on the e-com- e commerce businesses, but not big ones, right? It's it's not massive brands um, that are on the Revolut business platform. So, Whilst I would agree that there is an angle there, I don't think that's going to determine the success or failure of that product. I, I think there is also another part of this narrative that is interesting: is that is, is is they're trying this to be a counter to PayPal. PayPal has built, you know, uh, most of their um, or has achieved most of their growth through a partnership with eBay, right? One of the biggest merchants in, in the world, right? So where is the flagship merchant for Revolut? Who would that be? That would be the question that I that I would ask. Definitely,
0: definitely a good question. Benjamin, you got any hunches?
4: I no, but I think Adam's point is obviously spot on. Um,
1: New, you know, people change their habits and adopt new payment systems when there's some kind of must-have transaction. There's something they really want. You know, there was that piece of junk on eBay that you really had to have, and the only way to pay for it was PayPal. And so people signed up to PayPal, or you know, people adopted contactless because they needed to get to work, and it was the only way you could travel in Hong Kong or Singapore or wherever you live. Right. So what's the thing that gets someone to use Revolut, um, pay? <laughs> so yes, I think that's a, uh, that's a crucial question. Who are the merchants that are going to do it? But it could be those cross-border merchants that say, actually, use this, and they make it prominent because it's more attractive to them now. But is it better for them than Adyen or you know one of the other sort of payment service providers? That's a big question, and I don't see that yet.
0: Eric, you got any got any suggestions for how you think Revolut are going to make this stand out?
3: None, really, I'm afraid. <laughs>
1: You know, I mean, not everything that gets launched by a fintech is a good idea, right? And, you know, part of the way companies like Revolut succeed is they try a lot of things and not everything works, but some enough of it works that it grows the business, right? Not every idea that comes out of Revolut or Monzo or, you know, it, you know, Stripe, pick your fintech, not every idea is a good idea. But if you don't try some stuff with real customers, you don't find out.
3: I mean, obviously, this is, I'm, I kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, like they are rolling out all these different services. First of all, now they had a one-click one, one. A few months ago, they had the their buy-now-pay-later late, solution being rolled out. And I think it's, like you're saying, aren't just these sort of services that people are, are expecting? But I'm not sure if this is the one thing that will save them, unless, like Adam pointed out, that they find someone to partner with.
4: There's also one, one more point here where um, where you're a, let's say, pay, payment button on, on someone's, someone's uh, website. You gotta assume that there's a contract there for obviously acquiring services, right? That means that you're in control of the so-called interchange fee, right? Or the merchant service charge, whatever they would call it, because I don't think this is gonna be just Cards. It's probably going to be multiple payment options uh, behind Revolut, including direct payment from bank account, which is what PayPal did right a, a while ago uh, using direct debit. Um, so that is a way to control the margin, right, at the acceptance point of a merchant and, the- and leveraging your brand loyalty of your loyal customer base, uh, assuming they're loyal, spending uh, money with their favorite merchants. Uh, And and then if you capture those favorite merchants of your customers, because they have that data, they can go, you know, any point to any one of those merchants and say, hey, accept Revolut pay. But once they start that conversation, they're in control of their margins, right? Because they're the button on the website, not Visa or not, uh, you know, Adyen or Klarna or any one of those.
0: Definitely one for us to keep an eye on. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be
2: back shortly. As the leading open banking platform, Tink enables the largest banks, lenders, and payment providers to offer exceptional user experiences. Tink offers the best way to connect to banks across Europe to build seamless services that can reach more than 250 million consumers. And they're already doing this for the likes of American Express, PayPal, and Revolut. To get started with data-driven solutions for customer onboarding, making better risk decisions, or for instant bank payments with the highest conversion rate in the industry, visit tink.com. Hey, folks, the first ever 11FS Awards are coming this November, and we need you, our listeners, to get involved in the nominations. Let us know who you think are the industry game changers, the biggest rule breakers, and the best leaders. Nominate your favorite companies worthy of recognition over 14 different categories right now over at 11FS Awards Dot com. That's 11fsawards.com. Get your nominations in before midnight on Monday 19th of September. Then join us on November 16th to celebrate the best and the brightest in the fintech and financial services industry. Full details on 11fsawards.com.
0: Welcome back. Let's get into our next story, and that comes from Axios. Bolt's $1.5 billion deal to buy wire dies. One click, checkout company Bolt, is no longer acquiring Wire, the crypto payments company that it had agreed to buy for about one point five billion dollars back in April. The deal was considered the largest non SPAC acquisition of a crypto company when it was announced. Bolt was to integrate Wire's tech stack and develop its application programming interface API offering. Meanwhile, Bolt shoppers would also gain access to several cryptocurrencies, fiat exchanges and compliance solutions. While the deal isn't moving forward, Bolt and WIRE have mutually agreed to continue their partnership as independent businesses with the goal of bringing more innovation to e-commerce and crypto. Adam, obviously going to come to you first as someone looking to connect the crypto and fintech world together. When did you first hear that this deal was happening?
4: So it was floating in the industry um, around March this year um, and uh, people were getting excited because um, it was the, the dynamic was similar to a PayPal's announcement I, I believe um, in 2020 I might be wrong could be 2021 about them starting to, um, to to offer crypto to their customers right that was that was seen as a as a, as a significant milestone because of that um, and also wire is a company that is onboarding regular customers consumers. To uh, onto crypto, their entire propositions around making this as seamless and as easy and frictionless as as, as possible. So, um, you know, combining Bolt's uh, network um, and and merchants uh, with Wires um, sort of product made a lot of sense for at least the crypto community. And it was seen as a very, very, very um, exciting step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you say, it, sort of, it kind of felt like quite a significant milestone. So so what, what do you think's gone wrong?
4: The market's collapsed. Okay. Um, I hate to be the one uh, bringing out the elephant in the room, but... It was um, a deal that was um, concocted you know, at the beginning of, of the year when we still had the tailwinds of the previous um, bull run. And then things started changing really rapidly in April and onwards, right? Crypto prices went down, uh, confidence in crypto um, as an asset class went down, and then adoption slowed down, right? Especially on the payment side. So there's one use case here, right, where you have payments with crypto uh, for goods, right, um, that uh, the usage of that significantly dipped. And I think that partnership was angling towards that use case in particular, um, because it just makes sense. You know, this is a bold as a, a, a transactional platform, you know, on day to day basis involved in, in, in you know, millions of transactions and wire um, could bring the the element of buying crypto and then paying with crypto to Bolt's uh, customers or shoppers that use Bolt's platform. So that was that was seen as a significant uh, promise. But unfortunately, the markets, I think, um, weren't uh, conducive to that partnership uh, actually um, being f- finalized or that acquisition being finalized.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've obviously, um, the statement obviously implies they've kind of tried to leave the, the, the you know, the collaboration there, the connection there. You do you think you know, this acquisition or similar acquisitions like this will happen in the future?
4: I definitely think so. So again, here, you know, some parameters were discussed, some parameters were agreed. There was an, an ongoing negotiations. Meantime, the macro conditions changed rapidly. So you got to think about the valuation. It probably got cut by at least a half, right? Um, and then bold probably were in the position where they weren't feeling that this deal is fair anymore right and they still tried to negotiate or you know uh, or or try and make it work but it it didn't work out i i think definitely right now um, as we are still in the downturn let's face it uh, in the crypto industry we're going to see more consolidation and we're going to see more you know uh, companies with healthy balance sheets perhaps not relying on on you know crypto flows or or other high-risk flows um, sweeping in and, and trying to, um, you know, uh, gain a bit of a front base, right, in, in, in the Web3 or crypto um, environment uh, by buying companies. So I, I definitely see more acquisitions coming. Where are they going to be happening or the kind of which areas of, of retail um, or, or financial services are, are they going to be taking place? And I have no idea.
0: Eric, are you... Are you excited about crypto as a future payment method?
3: Uh, crypto has a, has a massive promise of being used in the future. Uh, there are some quir- some quirks, and to iron out before before I, we, I think we have seen mass adoption. I haven't been massively impressed with from what, what I've seen so far, and I don't think right now is the time to invest in it, given that the sector has crashed has essentially crashed or shaved off roughly two trillion dollars of the of the of the market in the past eight months. But also, on the other hand, that could just mean that we're now going to see lots of acquisitions, because if their valuations have dropped, and like we talked about earlier, funding for any, any fintech startup has dried out, that just means there might be some nice companies that might be on the market soon. But I do not know.
0: No, fair enough. Um, Benjamin, it, it feels like potentially we're entering a period of cancelled mergers. I mean, last week, last week we were chatting about EBS and Wealthfront? I mean is this is this a trend or is it just a coincidence
1: no I think it's a trend I think Adam was spot on in talking about you know the crypto winter and talking about valuations valuations in both crypto and and mainstream fintech have largely dropped you know there's far less enthusiasm in sort of venture venture capital I think some of the silly valuations we were seeing a year or two ago have, have fallen back you know if you think about bolt they raised 355 million at the beginning of the year and then they were going to spend one and a half billion on this deal. Well, you know, where was that money going to come from, right? Well, it was going to come from their investors, you know, so they'd raised that money and then they're going to spend a whole chunk of it on other things. So that meant, in fact, some of it would have been equity and so on. I think their shareholders were saying, hang on a minute, is this, does this really make sense? There's a logic to the bolt wire deal, but the logic wasn't that great. So I think we've seen some, some overvaluations. We've seen some deals maybe done in haste Um, You know, the old expression, you know, marry in haste, repent at leisure. Um, (laughs) You know, the the, the logic behind this particular deal wasn't all that strong. I mean, I'm not saying there's not a logic between fintech and and crypto, absolutely. But, you know, this particular deal, what was the synergy, right? Where was the cost saving? What what was really clever about this deal? It wasn't an obvious deal. And I think those two companies can continue to collaborate. And so I think there's a genuine collaboration there. So I think, yeah, I think we're going to see quite a few other buyers saying, hang on a minute, we're overpaying here, there isn't much of a logic. And the rush that we were in to make that acquisition six months ago, suddenly doesn't look so sensible. Um, So for the, the less strategic deals, so I think we will see a few others Saying, hang on a minute, or maybe the shareholders stepping in and saying, "Uh, uh-uh, uh you're not doing that. That doesn't make sense."
0: Watch out for the shareholders. Um, I mean, Adam, obviously, it's, we, their, it's their money, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, Adam. Obviously, we saw wire connecting onto the Visa network in you know, in 2021. Um, you, do we think crypto financial partnerships uh, are going to going to work out? Or, you know, what are the key aspects to making them successful? Do you think?
4: Um, I would just uh, refer you to you know Visa's. Public uh, results and you know um, and and uh, quarterly. I think that that's how, uh, how often they publish it. There was a, um, a history of this. You know, all of a sudden, crypto popped up as a, like a major. Category that Visa is reporting on, um, you know how many transactions are you know crypto related, how many transactions are 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 not crypto related, are like um, you know NFTs um, related. Just just watch it, and you very quickly see that one of the biggest payment processes in the world treats. Or takes crypto really, really seriously. Okay, so I would say there is a potential. I think uh, the use case of payments, in particular, right, is really tough at the moment because we don't have many places that actually take Bitcoin and not cash or not fiat, right? To use the um, the, the 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 word for traditional uh, traditional money. Um, and until that sort of last moment, so because Wire is an on-ramp, right? Um, into into crypto, the so-called on-ramp, so, um, you know, uh, allowing you to pay in fiat or pay to wire in fiat and actually get crypto in return on the various platforms that they support and, and, and they, you know, enable to, to use their checkout. But then you got to think about like, what is, okay, so what is the journey here? So money in, fiat in, crypto, right? Okay, so I'm holding maybe because I'm an investor. I'm trying to see if Bitcoin can appreciate or maybe it crashes. Then I'm cashing out back because I have to pay my bills, right? So until that last moment where you're cashing out to back to your HSBC account because you're scared that you don't have enough cash to pay your bills, that needs to fall away for crypto to really take hold or for us to even begin talking about mainstream crypto adoption as a payment method, right? That, is, uh, that would be my position.
1: One of the challenges with crypto as a payment method is, if you believe that the crypto asset you're holding is going to increase in value, you don't necessarily want to spend lots of it, right? You want more of it. <laughs> you want to hold it. And so, one of the challenges for crypto is, is, as the asset class as a whole, it's hard to be both a currency and a long-term sort of store of value or something you expect to appreciate like a precious metal or even a beautiful painting, right? So I think what we need to see is more discrimination between things like stable coins and so on that are maybe, you know, more linked to the fiat currencies where we're not expecting them to increase and the underlying uh, ethereums and bitcoins and so on that we we hope will appreciate because otherwise you've got this conundrum of, I don't want to spend this thing that I think is going to go up in value. I want to hold it. Um, and that, that, just makes people a little bit less willing to spend what they have, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so much we could talk about on this one. Sadly, we've got to move on. But if you want to find out more about crypto Web3, then definitely check out our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider. Our next story comes from Verdict Minority Neobank Majority secures. $37.5 million in Series B raise. Majority has announced $37.5 million in Series B funding, as well as new office openings in Texas and Florida. This financing comes nine months after Majority's Series A round and brings the company's total funding to $83.5 million, with all rounds to date led by Valor Ventures. Founded in 2019 by Swedish founder Magnus Larsson, Majority claims to be the first mobile banking service dedicated to serving migrants in the US. For $5.99 per month, Majority members receive an FDIC-insured account, a visa debit card, remittances and international calling, in-person native language advisors, and access to community meetup spaces, local discounts and events. Since its last funding round, Majority has opened three new locations in Florida, as well as a new location in Houston, Texas, to provide hands-on service and resources to migrants in those cities. Eric, you covered this story for for Verdict. Having spoken to Majority, how unique is is their offering in this space, do you think?
3: I mean, there are other companies that provide a similar service. Last year, I'm not sure if you remember, we had uh, Solve raise $40 million in a Series A race to provide a very similar service. But there aren't that many like them. There are a few few ones. I would be quite concerned if there weren't Because if no one else is doing the thing that you want to make a a profit from, there's usually a reason for that. And that's usually what VCs say, well, if no one else is doing it, why not? But there are other companies doing it. If you take another step back and you just look at the fact that they are a a minority-focused neobank, there are quite a few other minority-focused neobanks out there. You have Purple, which provides... Financial services to people for people with disabilities. You have Day Daylight, which provides similar services for LGBTQ community, and you have First Boulevard, that provides services for the Black community. And what all these these companies show is that there is an absolutely under un, underbanked pop- population in the in the U.S. and elsewhere that aren't having their needs met. And while it's still up for debate whether or not these these companies themselves will make a profit. Them highlighting that there is an opportunity for other companies, for the Revoluts of the world, for the JP Morgan chasers of the world to maybe step in and provide similar services. I think that's probably an an interesting and a good thing.
0: Absolutely. I mean, um, can you break down for our listeners what you think some of those unique challenges are that immigrants are facing in the US market? Well,
3: it's pretty much the same challenges that you would face if you immigrate anywhere. In the the US, it's very difficult, almost Kafkaesque to get a banking account unless you have a national security number. If you don't have that, that's problematic because of the way things have been going. Similarly, if you're in a part of the LGBTQ community, you may have been kicked out of your home and then you have to get a lot of debt, which means you may have a problem getting getting credit, which is why Daylight and other companies provide similar service. But for immigrants in particular, it's just it makes... It's easier to open a bank account to cut through all that red tape, and when they do, they can, like uh, Magnus Larson t- told me when we were talking, they can suddenly access a lot of services that we would take for granted. Yes, getting be able to maybe put the kids to school because you need a bank statement to do that, or take an Uber, or get a DoorDash. Uh, so, providing these services is a really is a really good thing.
0: I guess. Uh- yeah, someone who's skeptical might sort of say, "Well, you know, how can a Stockholm-funded company be navigating the banking challenges of, of U.S. immigrants?" Now,
3: I mean, I'm a journalist. I should you should always be skeptical. <laughs> but they, first off, they they are funded partly yes by Pakistani people, but also fun, funded by Valar. So Peter Thiel's venture capital company, so one of the biggest venture capitalists in the in the world. One of the guys that were uh, helped fund. Facebook at the beginning. So, if he's seeing some, something there, then there may be something. And usually, they they are able to hire people who are are on the on the ground in the states who can provide these services and the knowledge that they would would need. And one of the things that Magnus Larson ta- talked to me about is that he they're opening offices in places where they have massive immigrant community, so they can get to know that community, in on a hands-on basis and meet them face-to-face.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Benjamin, are the in-person native language advisors like a surprising step for FinTech given that you know, the financial industry generally is associated with cutting down on face-to-face touch points.
1: Just a quick side point on, on Swedish companies operating in the States. So remember capital, the personal finance money hub, that's again a Swedish fintech that, that, that went into the States. Um, but coming back to your point on, on branches, I think it's, you know, think about the points Eric was making about how difficult it is if you're an immigrant into a country, particularly if you're an illegal immigrant. It's incredibly difficult getting access to services and often you don't speak the language of the country you're moving into. So that's a really, really difficult environment. If you are so desperate that you've changed countries and, and moved, um, you've got a huge number of problems, you don't know who to trust, etc. Trust is a very human quality that is comes from often in-person relationships. It's much easier to trust someone when you see them face-to-face. It does not mean that you meet someone face-to-face, they can trust with you, but you know, um, it h- helps to build trust. And I think I think it's false to think that digital technology necessarily means eliminating humans. I think it's about eliminating paper, eliminating inefficiencies, Um, but fundamentally trust is still very much a human-to-human thing. So it's not that surprising to me when you think about who those people are and the situation they're in. They really need a helping hand. So I actually think it's a very smart move. It is a bit more costly than an automated system, but if you're trying to help people, you need to build trust and reassurance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Adam, what was your your take on this offering?
4: It's very interesting uh, um, because I'm actually a migrant myself. So uh, I've come to the UK in 2012, Um, now a proud British citizen, God Save the King. But but yeah, I remember, um, although I speak fluent English and have spoken for 20 years, it was quite uh, intimidating to show up here in this country and and you know um, start using all of the different services. Actually, you know um, subscribe to the mandatory services that you were supposed to uh, use as a person residing in in the UK. And uh, and yeah, so those kind of service providers. Um, I, I think my take on on because I have seen a lot of the in the UK at least a lot of the service providers that are similar to. Uh, to this one, are, are focusing on a specific uh, ethnicity or nationality, um, specific language, specific cultural conditions, because it's really hard to do everything for everyone you risk being a Swiss army knife right um uh and and not really delivering that specific experience that makes those specific migrants feel feel home or feel, feel safe so i would kind of challenge that aspect how how you know how are they thinking about this what is their um you know long term strategy um and and are they actually following the 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 geog- geographical movements of people uh after covid right because that uh, changed significantly. You look at that, um, you know, bird's eye view um, into the U.S. as well. Uh, there are very different, uh, you know, uh, patterns of behavior uh, compared to what they were before COVID. So yeah, I would I would hope that they take this into account when designing a service like this.
0: Hmm. Benjamin, do you think there's a risk of sort of backlash maybe to culturally focused products and services? You know, is it our Products focused on particular ethnic or cultural groups excluding others? Is that like a weird way to position it? I
1: don't think so. I mean, Obviously, if it's done in some completely culturally inappropriate way by someone who doesn't know that culture, then yes, that's going to backfire. But if you're building a service around a community and you understand the needs of those communities and you're serving that community, then why is there going to be a backlash? You know, I think, and I think other groups, you know, when you you see brands that are serving particular groups, you think, oh, it wouldn't be nice if there was a group that served my community. And I think that inspires other people to think about, "Well, well, what about this community? What about that community? Could we make services better and different? Um, for, for this other group. So I, I'm sure there will be some, you know, some commentator who, who attacks it. But I don't think there'll be much of a backlash because instead I think it will inspire other people to make their services more relevant to specific groups of customer.
0: Let's hope so. Let's lift the whole the whole industry. For more on how fintech is looking to address traditionally underserved groups, you can go check out episode 621 of Fintech Insider, where we spoke to Stilt, Greencheck and National Ugly Mugs. Okay, now for the section of the show we're calling Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Benjamin, do you want to get us started?
1: Yes. So greenwashing is a systemic problem at UK banks. This was reported in Finextra. A new survey has found that greenwashing has become a systemic problem among UK banks, despite universal claims that sustainability is at the heart of their business. The research conducted by Censuswide, surveying 150 UK banking executives, found that 100% of UK banking executives say that sustainability is integral to their business strategy. But just over half of UK banks, 59%, actually measure their environmental impact as part of sustainability targets. The survey also found that 49% of banks are offsetting non-sustainable practices with carbon credits as the priority initiative. The results come as another survey conducted by consultancy Kearney shows that 40% of British consumers would pay a 5 to 10% premium for a banking product if it was ESG. Environmental, social and governance. There's a lot of greenwashing out because somebody, you know, people cottoned onto the fact that the customers, people care about the planet. And so it's very tempting to say, hey, we're green. I think one of the biggest problems is a lack of really clear standards about what makes a product truly environmentally friendly or ethical. Um, or social. I think what we really need to focus on is carbon and uh, the amount of carbon being released and fi- develop some standardized measures. Great that UK banks are taking it seriously, but they're not really. Uh, actions speak louder than words, so get on the case start fixing the problem. There's banks like the Corporate Bank that have been doing this for 20, 30 years of, you know, thinking very carefully about what they invest in. Um, Let's see other banks um, making the same kind of public commitments and changing their actions.
0: I'm still holding out for a David Attenborough bank. I'm there. I'm at the moment he starts one. Our next story comes from Reuters, and that's a flurry of new rules leaves Turkish banks struggling to lend. Some Turkish banks are curtailing corporate lending after the government's latest raft of regulations raised their costs and forced many to cut their balance sheet risks. This is according to five banking and private sector sources who spoke to Reuters. The new rules, part of President Erdogan's unorthodox management of the economy, have especially depressed longer term lending. The owner of one mid-sized manufacturer said it was harder and harder every day to access needed credit. The rules mean cheaper credit will continue to be pushed to sometimes riskier, smaller borrowers, preferred by the government, while overall credit in the major emerging economy is likely to cool, said the sources. As inflation has soared to a 24-year high, the lira has shed more than half its value versus a dollar in two years. Most economists say this is due to interest rate cuts and economic mismanagement. Wow, yeah, the cost of living crisis is really starting to bite now. We're seeing governments all around the world sort of <laughs> desperately scrambling to find policies which will keep their voters vaguely happy or at least sort of not taking to the streets. Um, and the economic situation in Turkey was already pretty dire. I think the last time I checked, they were experiencing inflation rates of more like, you know, 80% versus the 9 or 10% were complaining about in the UK, around 8% in the US. So they obviously need to do something, but this feels really much more like a popularity move than a sensible fiscal choice particularly given that turkey have general elections next year so you can't help but feeling that that comes into it i suppose if i'm trying to find a positive spin on it you could say that maybe it's interesting to see corporate struggling for funding you know, normally when times get tight it's smaller businesses that struggle for finance so um, obviously concerning times for the turkish economy but smes are critical to them as well if you're finding a silver lining
1: i think the silver lining is the sheer vibrancy of turkish industry and turkish business people But yeah, the management of the economy is a more interesting question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. And that is from The Guardian that Kim Kardashian is launching a private equity firm. Kim Kardashian has ventured into the world of finance, launching her own private equity firm with the help of a former partner from the US powerhouse, the Carlyle Group. The billionaire reality TV star, business owner, and celebrity influencer announced the move on Twitter, saying the firm... SKKY Partners, maybe Sky Partners, would aim to make minority investments or take controlling stakes in high-growth, market-leading consumer and media companies. Along with Jay Sammons, a former executive at the private equity firm Carlyle Group, Kardashian's firm plans to focus on consumer products, media, hospitality, and luxury. It will also consider making investments in digital and e-commerce firms. Kardashian added that her mother, Kris Jenner, would also serve as a partner in the firm though Sky had yet to raise any capital to secure those investments, according to the Wall Street Journal. Benjamin, are you a Kim Kardashian fan?
1: I'd love to tell you I'm a huge fan, um, but I'd be lying.
0: Is this a vanity project, a serious endeavour?
1: I think actually influencers, you know, they have a lot of influence, right? We see how they're using social media to promote... Um, goods and services all the time. They're well ahead of the regulations, which haven't really caught up with them. Um, I think they have an enormous ability to influence things. So actually, it's quite interesting because, yes, if she's planning to promote consumer products companies and luxury companies and so on, that's exactly um, what her audience listens to. So it's really a regulatory question of, is this okay? Is it okay to have celebrities promoting um, products that they're investing in, at what point does that start becoming bad for consumers potentially? So I think there's more of a regulatory question. I think it's a brilliant business idea. Is it a good idea for customers?
0: Adam, what do you reckon? A celebrity endorsements good or bad for fintech financial services more broadly?
4: I think um, any, any kind of I would agree with Benjamin. Any endorsement from a celebrity or an influencer is 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 good for popularity and brand equity growth. Um, I think because um, those, you know. Um, those celebrities or, or those influencers are a part of um, the daily lives of millions of people. You gotta respect that. I mean, you know, no matter what you think about the individual in question, how they behave or what they say in public, uh, you gotta respect that there's a following of hundreds of millions of people, right? And that, in a consumer market that is, um, you know, uh, uh, that is competitive and an open free market, is is a big thing from a you know purely marketing and commercial perspective. Now I would question um, what kind of decisions that VC or private equity firm, how are they going to make those decisions because uh, having had some experience with um, VCS you know raising our uh, fund fundraise or, or our round, um, you know th- those, those decisions to invest or not to invest, they are based on you know actual data research. Uh, knowing the company or getting to know the team, the founders, the the the, the executive uh, um, team and, and the product and then does it satisfy a need? Is it solving a problem, right? How are those decisions going to be made? I hope that they're going to have advisors or people that are experts in those industries that they're going to be investing into because you know that can quickly turn into a, a you know a scattergun approach um just to invest in something that is louder and noisier you know and more notorious right or most notorious
0: I think um I think we need to focus on on the really serious questions here and that's you know, obviously, you know um Eric if you're fo- if you're starting your own VC firm which which reality TV style do you want as your partner who's who are you taking into the into the trenches with you
3: Not to be boring but I would actually say say Kim Kardashian mostly because I don't really know that many reality TV stars but also <laughs> uh, because it's very easy to joke about Kim Kardashian but you also kind of have to respect it because the girl's got the game she has over the past two decades become an extremely high net worth in, in the individual but makes some really really savvy bis- business deal and by essentially making herself the brand so this makes a lot of sense so i would actually partner up and because uh, i'm kind of intrigued at what she what she can do
0: yeah absolutely yeah she's a she's a smart businesswoman for sure adam who uh which which vc which vc team up are you going for
4: elon musk sorry i'm gonna be boring <laughs> he's an influencer as well right um he's a celebrity as well um i think his um uh, you know, uh, knows for business is uh, is uh, very well developed. Uh, let's put it that way.
0: You're a braver man <laughs> than uh, me. Benjamin, Benjamin, who's your, who's your eye on?
1: Well, reality, reality TV is a very national thing. Um, so I'm going to choose Mary Berry, who used to be on the Great British Bake Off because she's thoroughly sensible. And if you're going to run a VC firm, you want someone who's jolly good company. So I'd take someone who's sensible and good
0: company. Mary Berry definitely meets all of those criteria. I think that's a cracking choice. Okay, well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin?
1: I'm Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn, or you can find me through 11fs.com.
0: Uh, what about you, Eric?
3: Uh, you can find me on my daily news stories on K or on Twitter at LJ fantastic
4: and adam i'm on linkedin mostly adam bialy um and then uh, our website fierrepublic.com, to so where you can learn about our position
0: brilliant and as for me you can find me on twitter at k8.moody or on linkedin kate moody thank you so much for listening you can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com thank you very much goodbye
2: Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry-speak. So sometimes you just need a quick, human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.